0: Good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of James. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some spread around under the chairs. You could grab one of the black Bibles you'll see nearby and turn to page 1012. Actually, I need to turn there myself. I'm on the wrong page. There we go. Page 1012, we're continuing our James series that we've called Faith Works. And James has been challenging us that faith is not just an idea for us to talk about, but it's a real living trust in a real God who has invaded our life. He's disrupted our normal routine. We were choosing sin. We were choosing foolishness. We were walking uh, away from God. He designed us to walk in fellowship with him, but we all have rebelled. We've all sinned, uh, and God chose to come after us in Jesus Christ. And so we've seen this dynamic living faith that changes us, being highlighted in the book of James. It looks like something. Faith works. This week, we're calling it true wisdom. We're going to be in chapter 3, looking at verses 13 through 18, and there's this common theme of choosing the right path, right? You've probably heard this metaphor many times. It's common in ancient Near Eastern poetry. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in Proverbs. We see it in uh, other ancient literature as well, this idea of choosing the path of wisdom instead of choosing the path of foolishness. We have a choice to make. I saw this evidenced in high school in a movie that a lot of you may have seen. It was called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Any of you seen this movie? Um, Some of you have, old people like me, I guess. It's weird that that's an old movie. It seems like it just came out, right? Seems very current, but it's old now. Um, In this movie, there. Pursuing the Holy Grail, which is the cup that Jesus' last supper uh, was shared with, the actual cup. And it's kind of a side note that uh, we shouldn't be chasing the cup. We should be chasing Jesus, who is the real Holy Grail, right? But that's a a whole other story. Anyway, in the story, they're trying to chase this cup. They're trying to find it. And they finally get to this cave where a knight is magically kept alive for 500 years to fight off people who come to get the cup. And, of course, he's 500 years old, so he's kind of tired, and he just gives up and says, you have to choose the right cup. You have to choose wisely if you want eternal life from this holy grail. And so the bad guy then busts in, and the bad guy, of course, is full of selfish ambition, vain conceit, bitter jealousy. I mean, he's a bad guy, right? And so when he's trying to pick which is the right cup, and decide which one, he picks the cup that is most attractive, that's most glittery, that's golden and covered with jewels. It's the cup that looks the most beautiful on the outside, in the externals. And he picks this cup and he says, This is truly a cup for the King of Kings. And he drinks from the cup, thinking he's chosen wisely, thinking now he will have eternal youth and eternal life. And what happens? He turns into like a creepy skeleton and dries up, and it's like, you know, and he just like melts right there and turns into dust and blows away. And the knight who was guarding it says, he chose poorly. Very good. You know the movie. He chose poorly. Well, we're all given this option, according to the Scriptures. We're all given the option to choose wisely or to choose poorly. What's interesting is James, again, just in this section, if we didn't have contact with the rest of the New Testament, we didn't have the whole book of James, if we were just looking at this section, is a little bit like last week. It's got a little more hope than last week, but it's a little bit like last week where it really hammers, you know what? We've all chosen poorly. We've all chosen poorly. We've chosen the wrong way. Let's read it together. James three thirteen through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let me pray for us and we'll ask God to help us learn his word today. God, uh, we ask for your help because we cannot do this on our own. We thank you that you're generous. We thank you that you're kind. You've proven that to us in Jesus. And so we come uh, taking this risk, asking that you'd meet us here that your spirit would help us to understand and apprehend your word. Uh, we pray that you would make it so, that you would write your word on our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, if you just read parts of James, you can just feel hammered. You can feel convicted. You can feel like, man, I'm, I'm missing out. Because he's saying, if I really know Jesus... I'm going to be peaceable and godly, and there's not going to be any selfishness. There's going to be no ambition. There's going to be no envy in my life. And for those of us that are honest, that's scary because we're all there, right? We all know there's ambition and selfishness and envy and jealousy in our hearts. So it's a very convicting book. James is very convicting, and he presses us, but he presses us so that we can realize the depth of our need and find hope in Jesus, uh, one of my professors in seminary, when he was outlining this particular section, he said the outline goes something like this. This is the wisdom we should choose, right? This is what it should look like. And then this is the wisdom we did choose, ambition, selfishness. And then this is the wisdom that chooses us. I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. There's the wisdom we should choose, the way God made us to live this good Life, meekness, humility, wisdom. There's the wisdom we've actually chosen. It's selfishness, ambition, envy, jealousy. And then there's the the wisdom that chooses us, the wisdom that comes down from above. The whole gospel story is we can't work our way up to God by making wise choices, but he comes down to us in Jesus. We were broken. We were lost. We've all sinned. We've all turned from the Lord. We've all done our own thing. We've all denied what he's made us for. And yet he comes to us in Jesus. He says, I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to rescue you from yourself. So we have reason for hope, even while we're convicted that we are sinners, that we are selfish, that we have strayed. So the first thing I want us to think about is that we should show true wisdom. This is the wisdom we should choose. This is what it's supposed to look like, right? He just, in this first verse, says, this is what wisdom looks like. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. It's coming back to this theme again where he's countering something he doesn't say right here in this verse, but he keeps saying it so much in the rest of the book that we know that's what he's talking about. Don't just talk about it, show it, right? So many of us religious people, we talk about it. We could quote theology, we could recite creeds, we could say true things about God, but we don't actually live it out. We don't actually express it in our daily life. So he's coming into this context. He's challenging people, both official teachers and also just everyday people who say, I know the true facts about God. And he's saying, okay, if you think you're really wise, show it to me. If you really think you have wisdom, show it to me. It's impossible to study truth and really know it without living it, according to Christianity. That might work in other subjects of study, right? You might be an expert in engineering and practice bad engineering. You might know true things that you could pass a test on about certain techniques or skills or things you've gotten degrees in and not actually practice what you've learned. But in Christianity, we're taught you can't really know it unless you live it. You don't have wisdom if you're not living wisdom. You don't know truth if you're not living truth. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness, the humility, the meekness, the gentleness of real wisdom. This word good conduct is an interesting word. It it could be translated a beautiful life, the good life, right? It's this word from kind of the ancient Greeks and ancient cultures of this beautiful life that you put on a pedestal, the, the life that attracts us all, the life that we wish we lived. He says that's what real wisdom is. It's a life lived. It's not just talk. It's not just ideas. It's not just doctrine. It's not just coming to a religious club or joining a group, but it's actually living it out. This goes back to what we saw a couple of weeks ago, that faith is vindicated in the court of life by the good works that we do, by actually loving people, by actually serving each other and helping each other out. I grabbed a picture of a judge in a courtroom to, to stir this image once again in our mind that James hammered so hard in chapter 2, our works must vindicate what we think and believe in our heart. Not only must they, but they do. It's not so much a must, it's just a reality. What you live shows what you believe in the deepest recesses of your heart. So James is challenging these false teachers that might be saying, hey, I'm I'm the new teacher in town, I'm going to tell you what you should do now. We're not so sure about Paul, but I'll tell you what to do. Paul says... Hey, he might say a lot of stuff, he might know a lot of things, but look at his life. Jesus said the same thing as well about the false teachers in his day. Judge them by their fruit. Look at their life. And throughout the book of James, James keeps drawing these strings between challenges to false teachers and just challenges to the rest of us living our everyday life. He says there's a connection there. There's teachers where it's really obvious they're up on a stage saying things and they're not living it out. He said, but the reality is all of us in our everyday life, if you say you love Jesus and you don't love people, then you're a false teacher, right? So even if you don't get to teach very many people, just the few people in your family and in your sphere of influence, you're a false teacher because you're saying one thing and living another. So make sure that your life displays what you believe. This is often talked about as the community apologetic the community apologetic. And what that means is apologetic means a defense for the faith. In the realm of theology, when you study apologetics, you're studying the things that we discuss and understand that make our faith reasonable, right? So if you have problems with the Bible or the resurrection, and you wanted to learn more about that, you would be studying apologetics. In today's uh, language, just the way English has evolved, apology generally just means, I'm sorry, I did something wrong, right? That's kind of how we use the word today. But in Ancient times, the word meant giving a reasoned defense for something. And so when we talk about apologetics, we're talking about a defense for the faith. And a lot of authors will say that a a healthy community, a beautiful life, a good life, lived in the meekness of wisdom, good works, that lived in a healthy community. People loving each other, people loving their neighbors, that's the best apologetic. You can talk all you want about how reasonable Christianity is, but if you don't love each other, it just it's worthless, right? And that's what James keeps coming back to again and again. If you don't actually live it out, if you don't actually love each other, if you don't show it in good works, in the meekness of wisdom, in good conduct, in a beautiful life, then it's a waste of time. Then it's not real, James would say. He challenges us. I'd say, historically, Christians kind of divide in two camps, Um, because it's hard for us to walk that gospel line and really love Jesus with all our heart, soul, and mind. So traditionally, conservative Christians would say, uh, spend a lot of time time making sure you get the facts and the details and the words right, but you don't want to spend too much time helping people physically, because then you might forget to talk about the truth, right? And then liberal Christians say, make sure you spend a lot of time uh, helping people, because that's a really important thing, and they drift from talking about the truth and studying the truth to the point that a lot of them don't even know the truth anymore, right? In Christianity, in the Bible, we're supposed to hold those two tensions together. We're supposed to study the Bible and know the truth and be able to speak about it and articulate it, and we're also supposed to live it out and show it in good works. We're supposed to be kind and gracious to each other, be helpful to each other, and it's driven by the truth that we believe. It's not just something we do. It's something we say and we do, and those things go together. The next thing that James is going to challenge us with is that we should then repent of false wisdom. There's this false wisdom that, again, we should all be convicted that we all live this out. We all fall into this. If you look at verse 14, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And so we need to be careful about this as religious people, that we don't limit our religiousness to keeping a few moral rules, but we don't actually love God and love other people. He would say, if there's selfishness and selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and these heart problems in your community, in your heart, in your relationships, it's going to break everything else down. It's going to lead to disorder and every vile practice. And he's challenging, he says, don't don't boast and be false to the truth. Again, we saw this last week. Don't say I love Jesus while well, you have bitter bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, envy. You're always looking to take from other people instead of looking to give. It's living out an orphan mentality, saying, I'm adopted by the father uh, of the universe, the God that created all things. He loves me and he adopted me in Jesus, but then living as if you're an orphan. It's all on your own and you have to do everything for yourself. And so you're living in a selfish way. You're taking and stealing from others because you don't really believe you've been adopted and cared for. he would say, don't, don't say you've been adopted and then live as an orphan. When we live as orphans, we're we're like a black hole and we're just taking from everyone around us. I grabbed a picture of a black hole and I've used black holes before. And again, I don't think it's a real black hole because I think if you took a picture of a black hole, your camera would just get sucked right in, right? So, um, but this is an artist's rendering of a black hole, okay? A black hole is this incredibly powerful um, implosion where a sun is no longer pushing energy out, but it's now sucking energy in, right? So a black hole is now sucking energy in when it should have been giving energy out. And it's an illustration of what we look like when we don't recognize all that we've been given in Christ. If we don't recognize all that we've been given in Christ, then we're just focused on what we need to get to survive, to take from other people. But when we are just blown away by all the generosity of God to us in Christ Jesus, that he's forgiven our sins, that he cares for us, that he loves us, then we begin to see the here and now is not an opportunity to build our own little empire of dirt, but it's an opportunity to give to others because we're heirs, because we have all things. Even though we may not have as much as the neighbors next door, we have everything we need in Christ. So then we hold our things loosely and we have a spirit of generosity, and we're no longer demonstrating this bitter, worldly wisdom, this wisdom that says, no, you need more things to get ahead. You need to stab the next guy in the back because you got to take care of yourself, right? Nobody else is going to take care of you, so you better take care of yourself. The gospel says, no, the God of the universe has taken care of you. Maybe everybody else has betrayed you. I know some of you right right here this morning are thinking, that's just stupid. Everyone has stabbed me in the back. I've got to take care of myself. And I would say the gospel message is, yes, uh, others will betray us, And we've betrayed others as well. But the God of the universe gave himself for us in spite of our betrayal in Jesus. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. Jesus was stabbed in the back for us. He was betrayed for us. He took all of our pain and all of our sin upon himself on the cross to show the Father's love to us. And so in the cross, in the gospel, we recognize that God is a saving God. He's a pursuing God, and that changes our heart. We, we turn from selfish ambition and bitter jealousy to caring for others. Now, sometimes this happens in a dramatic event in our life, right? Some of you came to a crisis point in your life where you recognized this in a new way for the first time, and it was clear, and it was decisive, and you started walking in a new direction. Often for us, it's a long process, bit by bit, coming to recognize this reality. And then for many others of us, we come to that reality, and then we drift from it again. Right, we come to believe that Jesus is everything we need, but we start to forget. We become nearsighted. We drift from the gospel. One of the ways I often describe this is we think about the gospel as an entryway in to this life of faith, and we forget that it's like the oxygen mask that sustains us every day. And so we begin drifting from it. I want to recommend to you, uh, I think, in almost any area that just helps you to recognize all that you've been given in Christ, who you are in Jesus as an adopted son or daughter of God. Any resource that helps you grow in that knowledge and that confidence is gonna help you with this. But a couple of resources that I would really press on you that I think are especially good with this one is called The Gospel-Centered Life. The Gospel-Centered Life uh, is written by Will Walker and Bob Thune. Bob Thune's a pastor up in Kansas. Will Walker is actually closer. He's a pastor in Austin, and a friend of mine, but this is a really good book, The Gospel-Centered Life, done by World Harvest Mission, and it helps us walk through that uh, lifestyle of repentance, recognizing when selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is coming in and turning from that and trusting again in Jesus. It's not just a one-time event of meeting Jesus, but it's a daily life of being fed that oxygen of the gospel. Okay, God really does love me. Okay, I really don't have to fight and scrap for everything. I can give to others because God has given to me in Jesus. And it's a really helpful resource. We've used it a lot in classes here, have classes that are using it right now, and we'll continue to have more. But I'd recommend that book to you. Also, uh, Galatians, or uh, I think it's Galatians for You, is the full title by Tim Keller, I think is a very helpful book as well. I referenced that a lot when we were studying Galatians uh, last year. Um, But that's also a helpful one that just helps you apply the gospel not just to meeting Jesus or becoming a follower of Christ, but living every day as a follower of Christ. We drift into selfishness. We drift into taking, thinking that we need to take care of ourselves, and we forget the gospel. And so these resources, I think, are really helpful in reminding us. The theological term for this is called the third use of the law, where you recognize that God is so good to you in Jesus that you actually want to do what he says. So instead of thinking that you're saving yourself by discipline, You recognize that you're saved by Jesus, and then discipline becomes a desire of your heart because you begin to trust God, and you begin to say, I actually think I want to do what God tells me to do in his law, and you have a new outlook on it, right? And so that's this growing relationship we have with God, and it is progressive, and we grow in it. One of the things that I've recognized over the years is that there can be a lot of people that talk about the faith But just the dynamic of this beautiful life of someone that's not selfish, that's not ambitious, but actually cares about you, it just melts your heart. When you meet those kinds of people in real life, it it changes everything. I was at a pastor's conference several years ago, and there were all these ministry booths, uh, and they had different tables, you know, where they were talking about the curriculum that they were selling or the seminary that they wanted you to go to or this ministry table or whatever. So it's just all these booths telling people about these ministries. And I remember one ministry booth and I just wanted to hang out with these people because I was just struck by how these people had joy and these people laughed. And these were just the people I wanted to be with, right? Because they were generous and they had a sense of humor and they cared about other people. They were self-forgetful and they loved others. That, that's the way we should be, right? That's the beautiful life That James is calling us to. He's calling us to live this kind of life where we're generous, where it looks different. It's not just morals that we're keeping. It's not just that we obey God's law, but we actually care about other people. We're no longer marked by selfish ambition, but we care for others. The next thing that we see in this movement is that we should plant peace by true wisdom. So again, my my professor, uh, one of my teachers had said there's this movement from us choosing the wrong wisdom to the right wisdom actually choosing us in Christ. And here I see this same movement, we respond to that, right? As God's grace is initiated to us in Jesus, we respond in faith, and then we start acting like God does, right? God interrupts our world, right? Our world of sin and rebellion, and we're doing our own thing, and God breaks in and interrupts us with love in Christ, and then what happens is when we believe that, when we trust that, then we start interrupting other people's worlds, right? We begin to be the kinds of people that then sow peace. We plant peace in other people's lives. And so in this section, he uses the word peace three different times. So it's kind of the overriding theme. He uses a bunch of other character traits as well, but peace is the, the big theme of this last couple of verses. And then he also uses these planting and farming metaphors. We know in the farming world that it's hard work, but God actually is the one that makes things grow, right? That's referenced repeatedly in the scripture. So we do this hard work. We plant, we sow, we dig up the ground, we pull the weeds, we water, and God makes it grow. And we see the same imagery being used here. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's this beautiful image, and it really is a parallel to what Paul talks about in Galatians 5, where he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. All these character traits grow naturally out of us when our heart has been melted by what God has done for us in Jesus. So we we can't help but begin to look like what we worship. If we worship a God who is kind and who who reconciles with us, even though uh, we had turned our backs on him and betrayed him, then we can't help but become the kinds of people that sow and plant that peace around us. We begin to be kind. We begin to be forgiving because we're worshiping this God that showed that kindness and forgiveness to us. I have a picture here of someone plowing. Any of you ever uh, grew up on a farm or maybe you keep a garden, you do some gardening? Raise your hand if you know anything about planting, sowing, gardening. Okay, 10. All right, that's not... We're pitiful, right? I, I was talking to our... This is whole, totally on the side. Anyway, it's good. You, you'll enjoy this. I was talking to my kids the other day at dinner about how, how ironic it is that we all think we're smarter than ancient people, right? Have you ever thought about that? Like, we're not. We're stupid and we have iPhones, so just for the record, we're stupid and we have iPhones and we think we're smarter. Like if, if the zombies come, like none of us know how to plant or survive or live off the land, right? Like it's, it's going to be, I'm going to be in bad shape. There's a couple of friends that I know that know how to do that. I'm just running to their house, okay? Um, but anyway, we, we don't know what we're doing. I don't know why modern people think we're so smart. That's why we doubt the Bible. Oh, well, they were ancient people. They didn't, they didn't understand our our cool modern ways of sinning, right? They're, they were out of touch. Um, but anyway, that's a whole other story. Planting and farming is hard work. Most of us don't know it because we have no idea how it works. It's hard work. It's hard work. It's sweaty work. It's, it's dirty work. And again, we do this hard work, we give of ourselves, and then God makes things grow. And James is saying that's that's what supernatural wisdom looks like. Supernatural wisdom is not some guy sitting on a fancy chair spouting out truths. It's not some guy that can just recount doctrines. It's people who, who live it out. It's people who sow and plant peace in other people's lives. I love how this is a parallel the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. It's also very relational. Galatians 5 is relational as well, but this one seems even more relational to me than Galatians 5 does. It says you're, you're pure, you're peaceable, you're gentle, you're open to reason. Like people could have a conversation with you. It says you're full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It's not something you can fake, right? This is not like a moral code that you can keep and then really you don't believe any of it. Like, like you, can't, you can't keep these things apart from heart transformation. You can't genuinely love people and make peace with people and serve people unless your heart has been melted by God. And that's what he's calling us to, this supernatural peace, the supernatural wisdom that comes from above, that we would receive it and, and believe that it's true and that it would then just rock our world. We'd, we couldn't help but sow that and plant that In other people's lives. My question is first of all, do we believe that? Do we live that out? Is that what our lives are marked by? And again, I believe the way James writes his style is that we would uh, be somewhat wrecked by the reality that this is not how we live, that this is not what it looks like in our own life. But he does bring us to hope. Again, this hope that there's a wisdom that comes from above, even though we don't have a wisdom of our own. He said it at the very beginning of the book. Remember, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Let him ask. If any of you lacks wisdom. So part of what he's trying to do here is set us up to realize we lack wisdom. Like we don't have it. This is not what our lives look like. We want this to be what our lives look like, but we lack it. And so it should drive us in prayer back to God that we would ask him, God, help me. This is not working out. This is not what I'm Marked by this is not what my life looks like. I think this relational dynamic uh, looks like the way we interact with non-believers as well as believers and those that agree with the same doctrines as us. Right? If we uh, if we believe that we're all made in the image of God, as we saw in the last couple of chapters, that's going to affect how we honor other people. We see other people as made in the image of God, so they're valuable to God. They're valuable to us. That's then going to translate into we're going to be open to reason. We're going to be able to listen to people. We're going to be able to honor their ideas, right? As believers, we have very particular ideas about truth. We believe that the Bible is authoritative, that it's true, that we can trust it. And so that gives us a very rigid view of truth in some ways. But that same uh, rigidness or rigidity, I don't know how to say that. Anyway, that same hardness that we believe in truth, also translates in what we believe about other people. We believe people are genuinely valuable to God and to us because they're made in his image. And we also believe because other people are made in God's image that they're going to know and say and believe and hope in a lot of true things. And so we can listen to them and we can praise that and we can encourage that. And because we love them, we can then peaceably challenge them as well. We can say, this is beautiful and this is true but this other thing that you believe, those don't go together. And so being peaceable and being gentle and being meek doesn't mean we never disagree with anyone. We believe in truth. We have ideas about what God says about right and wrong. It just means we're patient with people and we're loving with them and we guide them to the truth. Our culture's gotten to a point now where we have started to believe that if you love someone, you'll affirm everything they say which means we don't believe that truth exists any longer. And I would say, no, if you really love someone and they're doing something that's dangerous, you'd say, hey, I, I love you. And because I love you, I want you to know that, that this could hurt you. And because God loves me and showed me that, I want to show you that as well. And so he calls us here to be peaceable, to be gentle, to be open uh, to reason, to be good listeners, to take our time with people, to be patient with people but we're still challenging them. We still, we still believe in, in truth. We still believe in a, a reality that God tells us what's right and wrong and we don't get to decide that for ourselves. So I think this will translate into our relationships in a million ways, but particularly in being patient and kind. And will we ever disagree with each other? Yeah, we'll disagree with each other, but we're gonna do it peaceably. We're gonna be open to reason. We're gonna lovingly guide them to the truth in Jesus. I think also we wanna come back to the community apologetic idea we talked about earlier. We want to live lives that are lived in balance. I think that's one of the ways I see us kind of getting this wrong sometimes. Our uh, immediate community here in Colleen is unique in that almost all of the people I know, their jobs are very noble professions, right? Most of the people in this community are either teachers or soldiers or they work in healthcare. And those are beautiful things, right? Those are reflections of the gospel when you serve others with your vocation that can be a beautiful thing, but we also want to live healthy lives where we display this peace that he's talking about in our relationships with other people, and we don't put all our eggs in the basket of vocation, because what can happen is we, we become workaholics, and we invest everything in this vocation of helping people, but we're not helping the people closest to us, right? So that's just a personal challenge. I see a connection from the text of what I see us struggling with in our own community. We, we want to love each other well in our in our immediate circles of influence. The people we work with, our family, our friends, we want to be there for them, not just love people through our vocation. He calls us here to choose the right wisdom, to choose true wisdom. As I said before, uh, the picture in the Indiana Jones movie is if you choose the wrong wisdom, you just become a mummy and you blow up and you're gone, right? problem with that analogy, right, is is James is challenging us with some heart sin that we're all guilty of, right? Like, we've all chosen that false wisdom. And so by that analogy, and I think this is actually true, by that analogy, we all experience spiritual death by choosing the wrong wisdom. Like, we've all done it. We've all gone there. There's this beautiful picture of the gospel in Ezekiel 37, where the people of Israel have chosen the wrong wisdom. And they're a valley of dry bones. And God has Ezekiel walk across this valley of dry bones. It's really a grotesque passage. When I studied it in a seminary, when I knew my Hebrew better than I do now, I studied that quite in depth, and there's a lot of uh, onomatopoeia in the uh, text, which are um, sounds that come through in the words, right? He's walking across bones, and they're grinding, and they're creaking, and it's just a grotesque image of death. And he tells Ezekiel to speak, to speak the word of the Lord. And when he speaks the word of the Lord, these dry bones come to life. Flesh comes back on them. And so what I want you to see in the picture of James chapter 3 and what James has been doing to us a lot is he's taking us all the way to, man, things are really bad. Things are worse than I thought. I'm not Indiana Jones that makes the right choice. I'm the bad guy that made the wrong choice. I'm broken. I'm full of selfish ambition and envy and jealousy, but there's hope because there's this wisdom that comes down from heaven that gives us life. After we're already dead, after we've already dried up and blown away, he pulls us back together in Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond together in worship. God, we thank you. We thank you for the new life that you give us in Christ, that you are a resurrecting God, that you prove that through Jesus, that your spirit of power raised him from the dead, and now you offer that spirit to us. So God, we confess to you this morning, we lack wisdom. We all live out this selfish ambition, this bitter jealousy, this envy we want to take instead of giving because we don't... Uh, believe that we have what we need. God, we confess that to you and we receive the hope that you offer to us in Jesus, that you've given us everything we need in him, that true wisdom is found in him. Lord, help us to receive it. Help us to walk that out so that we would be a changed people, so we would love well, that we would plant peace in our relationships and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the opportunity to share in communion today. And as we remember the story about pursuing the Holy Grail.